the second one, and we look at the second part of chapter 1. Um, let's, let's read that from verse 21 to 27. And I've entitled this uh, sermon, The Religious. So let's look at James chapter 1, verse 21 to 27. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not only hearers, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he, he was like. <clears throat> but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. How often have you said that? I must have said it a lot, in and out of the pulpit. But then again, the word religion or religious occurs many times in the Bible, in the New Testament especially, also in the book of Amos in the Old Testament, depending on which English version you use, and three times in James chapter 1 alone. So we cannot say that Christianity is not a religion. But how do you define religious? You can define it as a group of people who adhere to a particular set of beliefs and practices. Now, if that is the definition, then all people are religious in some way. And atheists are more religious than they think they are because they adhere to the belief that nothing created everything. And sports fanatics worship their favorite players and religious attend, religiously attend every performance or watch every game. So let's face it, you are religious, even if you religiously insist that you are irreligious. And the critical question is whether the religion you adhere to is true or false. And everyone has a religion, and everyone has a relationship with Jesus Christ of the religion of Christianity. Because he is either Lord and Saviour, the one who died for his sins on the cross, and therefore Lord and Master, or he is enemy. He is either just a good teacher, or he is a false teacher. And so everyone has a religion, and everyone has a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so saying that Christianity is not a religion, and that it is only a relationship, actually creates a false dichotomy. It makes people think that they have to choose between a religion or a relationship. Instead, the division needs to be between true religion and false religion, between a reconciled and relationship between man and God or an estranged relationship between man and God. And so, are you reconciled to God? And if so, is that reconciliation evident in the practice of your religion? But still, I'm very sympathetic to, to this uh, cliché, you know, that Christianity is a relationship, it's not a religion, because we all don't like to be called religious or re a religious nut. Um, and so as I dig further into this, ah, I found a word. This word is called religios. Okay? I learned recently and the noun of this word, uh, verb is religiosity. And it is defined as being excessively, obtrusively, or sentimentally religious. It's also defined as being sanctimonious, sanctimoniously religious, which means that you pretend that you are morally better than other people. 
ah, that's the kind of religion that I don't want, that I am afraid to be associated with. In the Bible, it's called having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And even the Bible says, avoid such people in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. So the book of James, James now suggests a test for true religion. And he said, use a mirror. So what does a mirror do? A mirror tells the truth. A good mirror tells the truth. And you know, you can use your hands to feel your face and sort of guess what you look like. Or your friends may tell you that you're very handsome. Um, They may be lying to you. But a mirror does not lie. A mirror reveals the truth. It's like this husband who wanted to get a birthday gift for his wife. And so he went to the perfume shop and he told the sales girl to, to recommend me something for my, for my wife's birthday. And so the, the sales girl took out a, a perfume that cost like a like $1,000. And he said, wow, smells good. The bottle looked very nice, but kind of expensive. Leh. Can I have something cheaper? And then she showed him something for, for $100. Then he said, still quite expensive. Uh, and by this time, the sales girl was kind of getting annoyed. And, and cheerfully, she still brought him one for $25. And then the man, you say, you know what, I mean, I'd like to get something really much cheaper. So the sales girl went all the way into the back of the shop and brought out a mirror. You get it? A mirror to show that you are a cheapskate husband. <laughs> and that's the truth. And so the Bible tells us, James chapter 1, verse 23, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. You know, in James' days, not so many people can read. And so the primary means of transmitting the word of God was to hear, to hear it being read and to hear sermons. And so you can update James chapter 1, verse 23 to this. Hearers or readers of the Word. The mirror is an illustration of the Word of God. So when we hear and we read the Bible, it is like a mirror to us. It examines us and it reveals the truth to us. It reveals the truth about us. So are we doers of the Word? So we read the Word and we do. But what we often do is not so much do the Word, but to critique the Word. Or when we have a Bible study guide, we critique the Bible study guide. And when we are given a set of uh, like cell group discussion questions, we critique the questions and we critique the writer of the questions, which is usually me. (laughs) You know, we want to keep it at a, a word study level. Let's get into the Greek or the Hebrew, and find out exactly what it means. We want to have it a Bible study, intellectual, philosophical level. And so we do not grow. And we are not edified, we are not built up. We are not built up in the faith because we are not doers of the Word, but we are discussers of the Word. We are critiques of the Word. I believe James took his brother's sermon to heart because if you read Matthew chapter 7, the brother of James, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave this Sermon on the Mount. And in chapter 7, 24, Jesus said this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. I believe James' sermon or James' letter on being hearers and doers of the word came from this teaching from his brother, the Lord Jesus. You hear or read only, you have no foundation, and great will be the fall. So let's imagine this, this scenario. You say your boss has to take a year off and he takes a year off because he has got to go to some different country far away to establish the business there 
and then he left you in charge of the business. And he says, Abeng, you take charge of the operations here. I will write to you and I will tell you my expectations of how you ought to run the business and then I'll give you some instructions as well. A year later, he returns to Singapore. And he comes to the Singapore office and he was stunned to find the grass and the weed have grown to hip length uh, around the premises. A few of the windows were broken. He walks into the reception area and he finds the receptionist playing Candy Crush. Not even looking up at the boss who has come back. The waste paper baskets were overflowing and the boss asks the receptionist and the receptionist says, uh, asks for you and the receptionist says, I think he's somewhere down there. She's, she didn't even look up from her iPad. And then he walks into your office and he finds you watching Korean dramas during office hours. And he says, what the world is going on, man? And you say, what do you mean, boss? You say, well, look at this place. It's a mess. And the boss says, did you get any of my letters? And you say, letters? Sure, I got, I got every one of them. In fact, boss, we have a public reading of your letters every Sunday morning. On Friday nights, we break into small groups. Our staff are broken into small groups and we study your letters in fine detail. And we commit to memory some of your sentences and paragraphs. And one or two of our staffs can memorize the whole letter. Then the boss asks, you read, you study, you memorize, but what did you do about them? So let's examine ourselves in the light of God's Word. A friend of mine said of his teenage boy, he says, he cannot walk past any reflective surface without pausing to check on himself. <laughs> would, would that all of us be like that teenage boy that we would use the Word of God like a mirror and examine ourselves? Verse 25, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer but who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You know, we often think that the Bible restricts us, you know, don't do this, don't do that. It is like legalism. But James here calls it the perfect law, the law of liberty, the law of freedom. And it is. Several weeks ago, Pastor Lonstra came here to talk to us about the grace of God. It sets us free. And Jesus said so as much in John chapter 8, verse 31 on. And so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Many of us read the second part, the truth will set you free, but you've got to read the whole verse. The whole verse is, if you abide in my, in my word, then you are my disciples, then you will know the truth, then the truth will set you free. It's abiding in the Word, it's doing the Word. Psalms 119, verse, the great Psalm 119 is a very, the longest Psalm. It's about the Word of God. It says, And I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. Once you seek the Lord, you do the Word, you are free. You are at liberty. It's the Lord Jesus' death on the cross that sets us free because He has paid the price for our sins and therefore we, have, we suffer no condemnation anymore. So it's freedom, is blessing in doing the word, and that is truly religious. So a religious person do or does three things. A religious person is controlled in his speech, is cleansed and separated from the world, is compassionate and serves the community. So firstly, a religious person is controlled in his speech. James chapter 1, verse 26 says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Bridling, to bridle the tongue is to control it like you control a horse. Another Christian author, Alexander McLaren, said this, the person who least live their creed are the the people, the people who least live their creed are the people who shout the loudest about them. So there's a lot of religious talk on the airwaves, in the internet, in books. But let's look deeply using the Word of God as a mirror. What are we doing about it? So by and large, I think religious people talk too much. 
So this sermon will be short. We argue over the final points of Scripture and Jesus called it, you strain a net, you strain a Zika mosquito, but you swallow a whole camel. And that's what many of us do. Those who do the least talk the most. We're going to have a whole sermon about the tongue in two weeks, so I'm, I'm not going to get into this uh, really at all. I just want to summarize it in, in one verse in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, which says, Let your speech be, always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So I'm going to leave it at that. Let's talk about the second point. So firstly, a, a religious person uh, is controlled in his speech. Secondly, a religious person is cleansed and separated from the world. And we find this in James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. To keep oneself unstained from the world. To be pure, to be undefiled, unstained, unspotted, unpolluted. The King James Version has a very interesting translation of uh, verse 21 of James chapter 1. Let me read that to you. James chapter 1, verse 21. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your soul. Naughtiness. So don't be Pisces. Don't be Pisces in Hokkien. Instead, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and not just that, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we're not just forgiven, but cleansed. But what about separated? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17 says this, Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. But this verse is very, very easily misinterpreted, so that we become Christian hermits. We, we forsake the world as in physical separation and social separation. And, and unfortunately, in, in the tradition of, of us brethren, there once was um, a group of people called exclusive brethren, that if their father or mother were not Christians, they would not even eat with them in the same house. And that's a really sad interpretation of this word, uh, separate. We're talking about being in the world, but not of the world, which means we are counter-world, or counter-world counter system, or counter-cultural. And the best verse for this would be in Romans chapter 12, from verse 1, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The religious person worships. And then, do not be conformed, do not be squeezed in, do not be conformed to this world, do not be squeezed into the mold of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, and that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So it's in our mind, it's not so much in a physical separation, that we will be transformed in the mind, we will be sanctified cleansed. So, tomorrow when you go to work and you go out for lunch with your colleagues and everybody is gossiping about the boss, be separate from the world. Don't join them. We'll have lunch together, but you don't need to participate in the gossip. Try to change the topic to a more wholesome one. You go on a business trip and everybody, after a hard day's work, goes to the red light district. Well, whether or not they participate in physical sexual activity or not, they just like to go there to, to walk around. And I know it because it happened to me before. I don't know about now. <coughs> or now everybody goes back into the room and watch the internet or something. Then don't go. Don't go. Be separate. Once I had a business meeting and uh, at the end, the business partner says, uh, would you like dessert? 
And you know what dessert was? Dessert was women. They said, oh, okay, I don't need dessert. I don't need dessert. So be separate. The office participates and uh, everybody collects so many dollars together. We're going to buy lottery tickets. Okay? Be separate. Don't participate. You know, the name Christian, or better yet, Christ follower, a follower of Jesus Christ, is going to mean something. You cannot be like the same person uh, in, 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 in your office as, as like everybody else. It's going to mean something. It's got to be different. It's got to be separate. We are not of the same mold because we are not conformed to this world. We are transformed in our mind. We are counter-cultural. You know, several years back, there was um, an annual conference by the American Heart Association. They met in Atlanta, Georgia in America. And um, I was told there were 300,000 doctors. I don't know how they fit so many. Maybe the number is wrong here. Um, to discuss in you know, a heart association, so they were talking about uh, diet, uh, low-fat diet, and how to keep your heart health, healthy and all that. But there was one smart researcher who went in the midst of all these doctors and medical professionals, and I think they called him a principal investigator nowadays, right? They, he found that um, he checked what these people eat, all these medical professionals of the American Heart Association, and they found that they were having bacon, double cheeseburgers, and french fries, the same as all the other hotels. Okay? So he sort of went and asked, what is the average diet of the hotels around Atlanta and this particular conference? Same. And so he went to ask one of these cardiologists, he said, you know, you, you, you preach something, and then you take all these high-fat meals like everybody else, aren't you setting a bad example? He asked this cardiologist. And then the cardiologist says, eh, not me. Because before I eat, I take out my name tag. And it's okay. So he just joined the rest of the world. And that's like that. So a religious person is controlled in his speech. A religious person is cleansed and separated from the world. And thirdly and lastly, a religious person is compassionate and serves the community. And this is the long part of the sermon. James chapter 1, verse 27 again. Religion that is pure, that is loving and compassionate, and undefiled, that is unselfish, out of the purest motives, before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now surely this cannot mean just a ritually, ritualistic visit, a monthly visit, to the local orphanage and, and maybe a, a, a fortnightly visit to the neighborhood widow. Visit only. No, no, hello, how are you? Go home. And that, that's it. I've done my James 127. It cannot be. It is just an expression to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And orphans and widows or fatherless and widows are mentioned 24 times in the Old Testament. It just means be compassionate. It means be compassionate and serve the vulnerable. And in the time of James, orphans and widows were the most marginalized and the most vulnerable of society. Later on in the second service, there's this sermon title, I think it's like, What's Wrong With This World? Yeah, plenty wrong. There are many marginalized and vulnerable in society. Well, actually, recently I, I read a book no, I didn't read the book. I heard the book. Okay? It's one of these audio books, which is much better. Okay? You can be exercising, you can be driving, and you still, still can be listening. Okay? You don't have to yeah, save a lot of time. And the author said this, Why hasn't the Christian religion made a difference commensurate with its message, size, and resources? What would need to happen for followers of Jesus to become a greater force for good in relation to the world's top problems. How would we make a positive difference? And then he said, all these questions may sound too religious for your taste already. Does it sound religious to us? Solving world problems and how come we are so big and yet we can't seem to do anything? Does it, sound it doesn't sound religious at all. It sounds like very social, very government, you want to call it very PAP. It doesn't sound religious. So when I read this, I thought, hey, what's going on? Religion is when we talk about individuals going to heaven. 
you go to heaven after death. Before death, got passport already. That's religion. Religion is when individuals talk about being more successful, more happy in their lives, in their earthly lives, that God will bless us with favour, with unmerited grace. That's, I think, our definition of religion. It's individual. It's all about our happiness. And yet this author was talking about something else. Now let's look through the eyes of the unbeliever and the non-believing world. What do they see when they see Christianity? You know, at our very religious, one of the most religious gatherings we've ever had in Singapore last year, at what was called the JDOP, the Jubilee Day of Prayer, you listen to what Lee Sen Lung, our Prime Minister, said. from today's Jubilee offering will go towards the poor and needy. In education, the schools started by our missionaries molded young men and women of character. I did not attend a Protestant mission school. I went to a Catholic school. But my children, two sons, went to one of the Protestant mission schools for which I am very grateful. In social services, your community has built up an extensive network of charitable services. I attended the 100th anniversary of the St. Andrews Mission Hospital last year and could see the good work which had been done over a whole century. You serve the less privileged in Singapore, regardless of race or language or religion. I had to cut out all the clapping. You remember those of, those of us who were there? It's like, wow, punctuated, we clap. Every sentence ends with a clap. But this is what an unbelieving world sees of Christianity of religion, true religion. That's what they see. And then they wonder why. And then we can tell them that Jesus died for our sins. I think that's the sequence. That's not, it's not, I didn't say this has to be the sequence. You just ask any of your friends who are not believers what they think. It'll be like that. What good is your religion, first of all? So why hasn't the Christian religion made a difference commensurate with its message, which is love, with its size, and with its resources. So where are the religious people in Singapore? Let me show you. On the left, the chart is uh, unfortunately very old. It's the, the, the only one I could find. Uh, it shows, of, and it only goes PAP, okay? Of all the mem all PAP members of parliament, how many are Christians? Of all the PAP members of parliament who declared their religion, how many are Christians? 44%. 44% of PAP members of parliament who declared their religion. Some maybe did not declare, so we don't count those. National average in the year 2007, national average of Christians was 14% at that time. The latest census is 2010. 2010 shows that 18.3% are Christians, and Christians include Catholics and Protestants, okay? 18.3%, uh, but in 27, average is 14, but in Parliament or PAP, uh, MPs, 44%. And then the chart on the right side shows resources. Uh, religion by dwelling type. So if you look at one, two, and three-room flats, 12.4%. Remember, at this time already, the national average is 18%. Four-room flats, 12.5%. Five-room and executive condos, 19.2%. Condo and landed property, 35.4%. 35. Nearly double national average. So the rich people, many, many Christians. Double national average. So this is the clout we have. Politically, economically. At our talk last Saturday, <coughs> Lim Siong Guan, um, and said that 
whatever studies that he has seen that to effect organizational change, you need some 20% or at least 20% to buy in, to agree with your message. So do we buy in? Do we buy in to James chapter 1? If we have 20% who really do the word, we will effect change. I think that's what it means. Or are we simply saying that, hey, hi, I'm going to heaven already. Uh, God has favor on me on earth. And then after I die, I go to heaven. Yeah, thank you very much. I read this article many years ago and I kept it in my, in my email box for the longest time. And I finally found uh, a chance to, to show it. It's an article from uh, 2013 in um, a church leaders uh, online magazine. And it says, when the mayor got in my face, what happened when the mayor got in this pastor's face? So this pastor met the mayor, and the mayor says, you and your church have a bad reputation in our community. And it really threw the pastor off. What did he say? He said, Pastor Scott, your church has all the money, all the people, all the resources to make a huge difference in our city. But the other leaders in the city see your church as inconsiderate and worse, as competition. Here's what I'm saying. You can either partner with us or compete with us. It's your choice, but your reputation is on the line. Okay, I think there are some unfair comments made there, but still, your church has a bad reputation in the community. 2013. And then I cast my mind back to 2002, and again, I searched through my emails, and I found this email, 11th October 2002, where we, through, through Jen, actually went to see Tan Cheng Bok, the MP of Ayaraja at that time, at the Pandan Gardens Community Centre, I remember. 11th October 2002, 14 years ago. You know, when I went into the conference room, before my butt hit the seat, before it touched the seat, Tan Cheng Bok came and said, your church, you Christians, you never participate in any of my community events. The mosques participate, the temples do something, that you church Christians are always inside your churches. No spiak. <laughs> what do I say? Except that, I'm sorry, we want to try now. That's why I'm meeting you. And, and you know, this, this was a, yeah, I say, Dear Pastor Tang, thank you for your interest in providing community service to Ayaraja. I will be most happy to meet you on Friday, 11 October, 10.30 at the Ayaraja Community Centre. That's how it started. Well, I'm glad to report that since then we've made up for lost ground. Okay, so on a macro basis, uh, many church members, uh, we go capping, uh, what we call community adoption and pastoring. Every small group here adopts one block. We go capping four times a year. Since November 2002, so I, I can't count anymore, okay, four times how many years? Four times 14 years we've been doing that. This year, we're going to have our third Christmas service. We're going to close down here. We're going to move over to Tepan Gardens, and we'll have a Christmas service there, a full service with altar call and everything. And, and we've done many, many carnivals and health screening and block parties, and every Friday we have... Uh, a Friday breakfast where some 50 to 60 people and we're really bursting at our seams on Friday mornings, uh, Friday breakfast with them. These are the macro things that all of us participate in. It's very good. But it's in the little things. It's in the individual lives touched that, that, that really inspire us. You know, the big things like carnivals and all that, it gives us visibility, it's very good. It gives us credibility that we are united, we are organized, we are all in it together. But let me share with you some of these little things. Someone from PPH is caring for this 10-year-old boy, bringing him, at that time, he was in a children's home, well, what is an orphanage really, to, to our community uh, uh, kids program, Cool Connect, every Wednesday, every Thursday, without fail. And then, during the school holidays, when he's allowed to go home, we bring him from the home to Kids Connect for six months. This child lost his mom. Dad is incarcerated, living with an auntie. And 
our people from PPH walked with this auntie who was a sole caregiver, advising, listening, and they were caught up in a child protection service, which that's why this child went to an orphanage or a, a children's home. They were suspected of abusing the boy and all that, and so we walked with them. We helped her in negotiating with the child protection services, working together with a social worker. Every Sunday, four kids from Teban Gardens are specially ferried from Teban Gardens to PPH. They don't come with a bus because they're caregivers and, and, and all that will not. First of all, they won't wake them up. And secondly, they're like not comfortable with them going on a bus and all that. And so somebody has got to take personal responsibility for these four kids. And so this person brings them from there. One of these kids stays with the grandma. Mom and dad are divorced. They're disappeared. Another one lost his father when he was very young. Another one, again, mom and dad are divorced. Weekdays, this kid stays with the mom. Weekends, stays with the dad. Another kid, no parents, staying with the auntie. And some of the families here within PPH are, are working alongside by offering to bring these children out for lunch on Sundays and other days. One PPH family meets with a sec one youth fortnightly. Ostensibly, it's called mentoring. Okay? You want to mentor someone younger, but it's just TLC. It's just tender, loving care. That's what it is. Some of you will know this widow uh, that many from PPH uh, were helping. Her, her young husband died suddenly while exercising. She was then pregnant with another young child. And two of our sisters helped her through her pregnancy and was on site in the hospital with her and just like holding her hand through the second uh, pregnancy. She had a lot of problems with her Singapore in-laws. She herself was from PRC. But I hear that she's so different now. She started a, a, a business with a friend. She has income. PPH members came alongside, provided her help on so many fronts, from, from sitting right through the delivery of the baby to legal help, to insurance help, to counselling help, to pastoral care. And one of our PPH sisters visited uh, her weekly, weekly for a year until she was able to find work. Someone met her on Thursday last week and said she's so different. You won't recognize her. She's so different. She's more confident. She's happier. Charles Spurgeon, one of the, they, I think they call him the prince of preachers in the old days, said this, charity and purity are the two great garments of Christianity. Very jazzy. Charity and purity. And James chapter 1, verse 27 says exactly that. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so we should strive to serve, but also to live unspotted and unpolluted lives. Martin Luther said this, the world does not need a definition of religion, but a demonstration of religion. And the Bible says this, 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And our beliefs must affect our behavior. Less talk, more do. Less words, more deeds. Be compassionate and serve the orphans and widows, the disadvantaged and the vulnerable. You know, in case you are so inspired now, and I'm such a great preacher, and you are so motivated, you want to jump right in now to, 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 to run out from here and, and go look for some orphans and widows. Just remember this first, okay? Let's come back to remember this. Luke chapter 12, verse 48. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So all of us are entrusted a lot. But Luke 16.10, the one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And the one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. So before we think we're going to be the next Mother Teresa, let's think about the little. Okay? And I've got this great poem I found. A Little Place. He said, where shall I work today, dear Lord? And my love flowed warm and free. He answered and said, see that little place? 
tend that place for me? I answer, oh no, not there. No one would ever see. It wouldn't matter how well my work was done, not that little place for me. His voice, when he spoke, was soft and kind. He spoke so tenderly. Little one, search that heart of thine. Are you working for them or me? Nazareth was a little place, so was Galilee. So before we talk about getting out there and serving the disadvantaged and the vulnerable and the widows and the orphans, we need to be faithful in the little. Like in a crutch, I'm still appealing, okay? I know we have two volunteers already. Like working the PowerPoint, the little. Like bring some elderly folk to a medical checkup and be committed to that. If you're volunteering in any of this work, whether you're doing the PowerPoint on the crash, you've got to come on time. Faithful in the little before we talk about widows and orphans. You know, uh, a preacher was trying to persuade this person to teach in Sunday school. She's well qualified. She had the time for it. And then she said, well, I don't want to be tied down to things. Just don't want to be tied down because Sunday school means and I think for us here in PPH, we ask for at least a one-year commitment. Uh, this is an apocryphal story, okay? It's not, it's not a real-life story from this church. I, I read a story somewhere, so I, I'm just... Okay, get it, huh? Okay. Then the preacher said, you don't want to be tied down? Do you know we serve a master who was willing to be nailed down? Wow. Only I wish I was so wise, huh? I say one word like that, and wow, this person will serve for the next 20 years. You get what I mean, right? It's the little things. It's the little commitments you, true to your word, when you say you committed this task, you're supposed to come at 8 o'clock or whatever time, you'll be there. Before we talk about widows and orphans. So someday, when I'm not preaching, here on this pulpit, I might be standing in the back and I might come across somebody who walk into the church door. He might rush in, panting at 10.30, and say, ah, 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 is the service over? And then, then now I have this wise thing I'm all prepared to say. Okay, one day, one of you will kana this. Huh? And I'm going to say, well, the worship is over, but the service is only just beginning. Ah, don't ever kana this from me. Amos chapter 5, verse 23, it says, take away... God says, take away from me the noise of your songs, your drums, your guitars, to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Righteousness is doing the right thing. Do the right thing. And so, fellow religious people, brothers and sisters in grace, that's another new word we learn. A religious person is controlled in his speech, is cleansed, is separated from the world, in the world, but not of the world. Lastly, and I think very, very importantly, is compassionate, has got the love of God in our hearts and serves the community. So how shall we pray as we come to a close? We should pray like Jesus you know, in, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And therefore, pray earnestly. You know, Jesus had three commanded prayers. One is um, this one. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Is, is in the Greek, uh, whatever, active, uh, imperative uh, 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 verb. The other one is watch and pray that you do not fall into temptation. And then there's one more. I think pray for your enemies or something like that. Only three. This is one of them. Pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers into the harvest. And so what do we think of this verse? We often think of this, oh, to bring in the harvest means to bring in people, make them Christians and put them in the church so that this church will grow. But there's another kind of harvest. And now as a beginning, think more about this. I think it may be more of that. That, Jesus, uh, that James talked about in chapter 3, uh, further down. And James chapter 3, verse 18 says this, right there at the bottom. And a harvest of righteousness. 
a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So who are the religious people? You and I. But they are the ones who must be first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere. And that's the verse before this one. And then this one, a harvest of righteousness. These are the religious people who are the laborers in the harvest of righteousness. So let's think of some application as I ask the musicians to come and help us with a great closing song. I really love this song. But application, I just, okay, it's, it's for you to think about. But as I was thinking, like, you know, when we go on a mission trip, and I've seen this happen, all of us gravitate to the beautiful children. You know, the one who's beautiful and cute ones. Hey, go to the dirtiest, the ugliest child. Really. The shy one who's always hiding behind someone. I think that's what we should do when we go on a mission trip. Or in your office, who is the one without friends? The one who, the one who doesn't have a lunch khaki? That's the one you ought to be going to. That's your orphan. That's your widow. The one with bad breath. Ah, I think that's tough, right? To go for lunch with somebody with bad breath. And befriend them, you love them, and you earn the credibility that when you buy them mouthwash, they will thank you. They will not be offended. And I've done this once in my life. Okay, I bought mouthwash and said, hey, I think you need this. So we are religious people. Like it or not, we are religious people. But we need to be cleansed, separated, not conformed to the ways of the world. But when the world sees us, they, sees, uh, they see us as not perfect. Obviously not perfect, but that's okay. But then they will see us as people one lost, once lost, now found. Kind of like uh, Xiao Liqin last, last night. And she was totally lost, but now she is living a purposeful life, even though she's very ugly with all the scars. Once we were dirty, now we are forgiven. Once we were stained, now we are unstained. Once we were religious, sanctimonious people, now religious, true, undefiled religions. Once we were naughty, as in King James of 121, but now we are kwai kwai. Once we were selfish, now we are compassionate. Once we were tyrants as bosses, now we are servants. Let's rise as we sing this song together. Children were made for the streets, and fathers were not made to leave. Surely this isn't how it should be. Let your kingdom come. Surely nations are.
treasure A work of art that's broken To be your hands and feet I will give With the life that I have been given Shelter for the hurting, Jesus, your name is a refuge for the weak. Only your name can be the undeserving. Jesus, your name holds everything I need. inspire us Lord. inspire us with that sacrificial love on the cross that is the basis for everything that we do but first we need to be we need to be inspired challenged by the love of God Almighty that you from on high would die for us would bear the nails on your hands and feet a crown of thorns on your head a spear to your side for us. And so God, we pledge to live the life we have with compassion, with service toward the most marginalized, toward the most vulnerable. But first, Lord, help us to be faithful in the little So children of God, be sent forth in the world by the love of God to impact a society. We have the clout, we have the resources, and we can make a difference. So go with God, we pray. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me downstairs for the baptism.